SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, September 18, we look at how the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum debate is exposing a deep political divide over Australia's culture and uh, history. Also coming up in the program, we explore the inaugural First Nations Dingo Forum held in Keynes last week. The forum focused on misconceptions about the Dingo and how to bring back First Nations voices in the Dingo narrative and management. Also coming up in the program today, as the bushfire season approaches, we examine indigenous cultural burning, a practice passed on from generation to generation to protect land and animals. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news, broadcasting from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungadamingaya, I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Tributes pour in for Lionel Morgan, the first Indigenous player to represent Australia in rugby league. No campaigners split on seeking treaty negotiations if the voice to Parliament is defeated. And the Federal Environment Minister sued for allegedly failing to protect Australia's natural treasures. the first Indigenous player to represent Australia in rugby league, rugby league has died aged 85. The winger, who died on Saturday night in Brisbane, played 12 interstate matches for Queensland against New South Wales between 1960 and 1963, scoring 11 tries. Morgan scored a double on debut against France in 1960 before playing two more tests against the nation and was also a player and coach with the winner Manley in the Brisbane Rugby League. In a statement, ARL Commission Chairman Peter Vlandis has described Morgan, who was named in the Australian Indigenous Rugby League team of the century in 2008 as a trailblazer. Prominent no campaigners are split on whether they will seek to pursue treaty negotiations if the voice to parliament is defeated. No campaigner Warren Mandin has said that a successful no vote will make treaties between Indigenous Australians and state and federal governments more likely to be negotiated. No campaigner and Nationals MP Barnaby Joyce, proponent for the voice, do not understand. For, proponent for the no voice, do not understand how significant the change to the constitution would be. 
we don't take this referendum as a joke. We, are, we think it's incredibly important that people all, us also understand you've got a big, big change to your constitution if this goes through the biggest change in the history of Australia. And um, it's something we've got to really focus on and take seriously because a selected body having that much power at an executive level of our nation based on race is something that so many people, the quiet knows, the quiet knows, and I see them all the time, but the loud yes, the loud knows, the quiet knows have real concerns about this. So divisive. They just want October the 14th to come, October the 14th to go, and to try and then remove the derision. In the meantime, thousands of Australians have rallied across the country on Sunday in support of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Supporters in favour of the proposal have marched through Australia's state capitals and regional towns ahead of the referendum on the 14th of October. PS campaign has stepped up its presence after a poll showed last week that the constitutionally enshrined advisory body was likely to be rejected, the fifth survey in a row this month to find voters against the change. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek attended one rally in Sydney. She tells Channel 7 she did not expect so many people would attend the rallies nationwide. It was a terrific turnout in Sydney yesterday. Uh, thousands of people, many more than I was expecting, and we saw that pattern repeated right around Australia. So, yes, it was a, a day of great hope, and there were thousands of people there uh, saying, vote yes, vote yes to reconciliation, vote yes to recognition, vote yes to listening, vote yes to better advice, vote yes to better outcomes. That's why they were there. And you can find comprehensive information about the referendum by visiting the SBS Voice Referendum portal at www.sbs.com.au slash voice referendum. The Federal Environment Minister is being taken to court accused of failing to protect the Great Barrier Reef and Australia's other living treasures from climate harms caused by coal mining. The federal court will hear the case against Tanya Plibersek in Melbourne this week and those behind it say the outcome could have implications for major coal and gas projects across Australia. The the Environment Council of Central Queensland is pursuing the minister after she refused its request to reconsider the full scope of climate impacts from two coal mining projects at Narrabra and in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. The companies behind the projects, Whitehaven Coal Subsidiary Narrabri Coal Operations and MACH Energy, have joined the proceedings in support of the minister. A year on from the Optus data breach, the federal government is looking at developing cyber security standards and is putting the responsibility on companies and developers to keep Australians safe online. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill tells the ABC that cyber security is a defining national security problem for Australia. The minister pointed to similar laws overseas that ensure apps and programs have built-in protections rather than leaving it to the consumer. One of the things that we've seen in countries around the world who are perhaps a bit ahead of us, who have got a bit of a head start on the cybersecurity challenge, is that they are starting to develop standards for how products need to be cybersecure before they can be sold. And Australia has been a little bit behind on these. And so the first thing we need to do is look at those standards that are being developed around the world and understand how we can engage with that process. The Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Michelle Bullock, will become the first woman to lead the central bank today as she takes over from outgoing Governor Philip Law at the end of his seven-year tenure.
Ms. Bullock will be expected to finish the task of reducing inflation rates after a sharp surge following the pandemic recovery, with price growth starting to decelerate after 12 interest rate hikes by the Reserve Bank in the last year. Dr. Law, who was appointed under then-Treasurer Scott Morrison in 2016, has overseen the economy through the pandemic but faced criticism for successive interest rate increases, with Treasurer Jim Chalmers electing in July to appoint Ms. Bullock to to replace him. Ms. Bullock will also be expected to reform the institution in the wake of an independent review into the RBA released earlier in the year. Survivors of domestic violence could finish could find it easier to seek compensation under proposed family law reforms designed to make the justice system safer and more accessible. Draft legislation and a consultation paper released by the federal government proposed that family violence be considered an important factor in property disputes and settlements. Inquiries have found challenges facing the justice system include problems with with responding to family, child abuse and neglect, overly complex and confusing laws, financial hardship from protracted legal battles and incompetent family law professionals. The Australian Law Reform Commission recommended amendments to family law that allow compensation for the harm caused by family violence by removing barriers to providing evidence. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus says the reforms would send an important message about the long-term harm of violence. The refugee group 12,000 Captive Souls has started a week-long protest outside the office of Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill this morning. The protest is set to run from 9am to 5pm each weekday, demanding faster refugee visa processing times. Spokesperson Maggie Marsai and her daughter Tanya, among between 10,000 and 12,000 asylum seekers in Australia, rejected under the fast track system and left in limbo for 11 years on a bridging visa. High school student Tanya Mirsai tells SBS News this process is unjust. Instead of like focusing on my schoolwork, I've been put in a position where I have to worry about like coming to protests and negotiating my rights with like MPs and government representatives. I believe this is really unfair and very unfortunate circumstances. Sucks that no one's here to listen to us. No one cares enough to look out for us. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has visited the Italian island of Lampedusa, which is struggling with a surge in migrant arrivals and promised a 10-point EU action plan to help Italy deal with the situation. Ms. von der Leyen was accompanied by Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni and the car carrying them to Lampedusa's migrant reception centre was briefly blocked by locals protesting over the burden facing the island. One of the residents of Lampedusa, Gian Damino Lombardo, says the island is under siege by migrants. Today it's a besieged island. I've been there in this situation in the past most likely. Considering the processes of the last 30 years, we will be there in the future as well. This is why we would like the small community to be made safe through ships that protect the island, through swift local management. Nearly 126,000 migrants have arrived in Italy so far this year, almost double the figure by the same date in 2022. 
The small island of Lampedusa has recently seen a sharp rise in the number of people arriving by boat, with more than 7,000 landing this week, more than the island's permanent population. And to sport in rugby, defiant Wallabies coach Eddie Jones insists Australia's World Cup dreams are not over despite their shock loss to Fiji. Eddie Jones believes the team can turn their form around to trump Wales and still move through to the quarterfinals. Crushing 22-15 in their first loss to Fiji in 69 years and their first ever to World Cup leaves the Australians in danger of missing the tournament playoffs for the first time. The undermanned Australians couldn't match the power and pace of the Pacific Islanders who say they entered the match with what they called a do-or-die mentality after their heartbreaking first loss to Wales. The Wallabies will need to take the same mindset into their third match against the unbeaten Welsh team next Monday. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny 29, Perth, partly cloudy 19, Adelaide also partly cloudy 24, Melbourne cloudy 21, Hobart, mostly sunny 17, Albury-Wodonga, partly cloudy 27, Canberra, mostly sunny 28, Wollongong, sunny 35, Sydney, much the same, 30, Newcastle, also sunny 33, Brisbane, partly cloudy 26, Townsville, sunny 27, Keynes, a shower 227, Alice Springs, sunny 33, Darwin, also sunny 33 degrees, and at West Strait Islands, a sunny day ahead at the top of 28 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 pm or anytime online. I'm Patron Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next, we explore the inaugural First Nations Dingo Forum held last week in Keynes. The forum focused on misconceptions about the dingo and how to bring back First Nations voices in the dingo narrative and management. Also, as the bushfire season approaches, we examine indigenous cultural burning, a practice passed on from generation to generation and to protect land and animals. But first, we look at how the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum debate is exposing a deep political divide over Australia's culture and history. The Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, says many First Nations people are distressed and disgusted by her political opponents' comments on the arrival of British settlers. But no campaign leader, no campaign leader and opposition minister Jacinta Nampinjipa Price has been praised by the opposition leader as brave after she asserted there were no negative impacts from colonisation. Kara Hain reports. The Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum debate is exposing a deep political divide over Australia's culture and history. Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney says her office has been inundated with racist abuse in recent months. Opposition Minister for Indigenous Australians Jacinta Numba-Gimpa-Price says she's had a similar experience. But it was this comment from Ms Price which has sparked an uproar. No, there's no ongoing negative impacts of uh, colonisation. A positive impact? Absolutely. I mean, now we've got running water, we've got readily available food. 
Senator Price has rejected the idea that colonisation had led to generations of trauma and suggested families of convicts face similar struggles. Minister Burney says she's outraged by the senator's comment. I know there are many people, and I've spoken to them last night and this morning, that are very distressed um, and, quite frankly, pretty disgusted. In response to Ms Price's comments, the Indigenous elected Central Land Council in Alice Springs posted a video about the Coniston Massacre. It was the last documented massacre in Australia, which took place in 1928, resulting in the deaths of more than 60 Aboriginal men, women and children. Uluru Dialogue advisor Christy Parker says Senator Price's comments are alarming. If we're at the stage where now we are walking back... um, accepted truths about the history of this country, um, I think we're in a lot of trouble. But another leading no campaigner, Warren Mundine, has backed Senator Price. I find this interesting in regard to colonisation trauma uh, going through generations after generations and they talk about trauma. Well, if you, if you to believe that, then the, the Jewish people who come out of the Holocaust would be laying on the, in a fetal position on the ground and not have been able to build Israel, not been able to, to, to do the things that they have done in the world. Uh, so I think this is overrated. I think they talk about it a lot. Opposition leader Peter Dutton hasn't repeated Miss Price's comments, but says she has the right to make the point. If you look at what uh, Jacinda had to say, in context, uh, firstly, she's a brave Indigenous woman, and uh, we either accept that uh, people have views, uh, a broad range of views, uh, or we don't. Uh, the left just say, well, we can only listen to people like Marcia Langton, but Indigenous people uh, on the right, like uh, Jacinda Price, we can't listen to. The exchange of views about racism and race will move into the community for another four weeks, as Parliament goes on break before the ballot is held on October 14. Both campaigns are appealing for it to happen with respect, but there's also a fear the nation could end up further from reconciliation. And you can find comprehensive information about the referendum by visiting the SBS Voice Referendum portal at sbs.com.au slash voice referendum. Kira Hain, SBS News. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. It's now time for another break, but uh, stay with us because when we come back, we look at the inaugural First Nations Dingo Forum held last week in Keynes. Now, conversation about the inaugural First Nations Dingo Forum held last week in Keynes. Convened by the Gingon Aboriginal Corporation, the forum sought to dispel some of the myths and misconceptions about the Dingo and bring back First Nations perspectives in the narrative about this native animal and its management. To explore the significance of the inaugural First Nations Dingo Forum, I caught up with Sonia Takao, Media and Communications Officer, and Chris Morita, Ranger Coordinator and Joint Acting Executive Officer at the Giringon Aboriginal Corporation. In our conversation, we discussed the story of the Dingo, which enjoyed a deep relationship with First Nations people. This relationship has been tarnished by colonial narratives and motivations that are still prevalent today. We started by discussing how the dingo is one of the rare native animals not protected as an endangered species. Currently, in most states except Tasmania, the dingo is legislated as a pest. The dingo is not afforded any protections as some First Nations people have always thought. Because we've always 
had a companionship with them and they've been so uh, significant to us as First Nations peoples, Bertrand, and we've always classified them as a native animal. Uh, we've never questioned that. So we've just always believed that they were a native animal of Australia and had protections just like every other native animal across this landscape that we call Australia. It is believed one of the misconceptions of uh, this animal being um, misconstrued and uh, hunted down and uh, trapped and uh, baited and shot almost to extinction. It stems from uh, pastoralists encroaching on their land and uh, portraying the dingo as a pest. I'm of the opinion that that is correct. Um, I don't see, like for us, that we will never ever classify them as a pest. You know, growing up from a young girl, I've always been told by my father, my elder, and my family members who are very strongly tied through our family system or what we call our kinship system to the dingo through our dingo story. We've never, ever thought of them as a pest, but rather a, a, a loving family member, a companion. My father has always said that they actually helped us survive, you know, through hunting and, and gathering because they're very smart, intelligent animal. So I suppose how myself as an Aboriginal person views the dingo to someone of non-Indigenous background is going to be completely different. Um, and it's for those reasons that, you know, we've had a, held a very long relationship with um the dingo, you know, for a very long time. And that positive uh, interaction with the dingo is um, widespread across the continent. You know, I can't speak for mob up up in the Northern Territory because the land's different, the language is different and the culture's different to me as a Jitterbol rainforest Aboriginal person. Um, and that's why we don't speak for another tribe. But we do know, in essence, that there is a connection there with that animal. Um, and I suppose that's where Western science comes into it with the research that's been written down by early explorers right through to currently now in contemporary society, you know, that there's this massive, massive connection um, to the dingo that can be seen quite clearly from First Nations people of and how they view the dingo um, in this country, which is completely different to Western perspectives. Um, but also, I think, you know, science is through early explorers writing down about the dingo and their interactions with Aboriginal people just down the road from us here in North Queensland. Carl Lumholtz um, was a Norwegian explorer that came here through the 19, mm. early 1900s on one of the tribal groups that we um, look after, and that's Watagame people. You know, he recorded a lot about watching the interactions of rainforest Watagame people with the dingo. Carl Lumholtz actually writes in his early writings that one of the Aboriginal men there that helped catch the uh, Lumholtz tree kangaroo, what we know, which was named after him, um, was actually caught by one of the Aboriginal men and his companion Dingo. And he writes about the Dingo having a, a strong relationship with Warragamay people 
there. But my point is, is that when we hold this forum this week in Cairns, I'm really excited because there's going to be so many First Nations people coming together in this one area and it's going to be really wonderful to hear from their mouths themselves, not what was written down by early explorers or current science now, but from the oral traditions and histories of these First Nations peoples themselves, what the dingo means to them and how we can all work together to try and achieve some kind of way forward in protecting them. So most of what we know nowadays about the dingo stems mainly from uh, the white settler narrative and uh, less about uh, what First Nations people themselves talk say about the dingo. Bertrand, I really think it's the first time ever in Australia that we've really been able to come together and have this conversation. You know, the first fleet arrived here in the country with their sheep and their cattle Straight away, the, the dingo being the apex predator that it is, these these new things came in onto the dingo's land just like they did with us and displaced the dingo and the misconceptions and the myths started and it didn't start with us. It started with, you know, um, the settlers, the British, um, that this animal had to be eradicated because it was a threat to their livelihood and making, you know, economic development. And I suppose, you know, this is where Aboriginal thinking is totally different to Western thinking because we're all about the environment, living in harmony with it, coexisting. Our culture is about sharing and making sure our families are looked after in that way. Um, Whereas Western culture came in thinking that they could just take the land and set up the cattle and sheep farm straight away and unfortunately the environment doesn't work like that the, the dingo was there all along I say that when you work on c- country you have to see the country holistically how we view the country so for example if you touch one thing in the environment what else is that going to do to everything else that's connected to that one thing within the environment and that's what we've done with the dingo. We've just come in, you know, Western cultures come in, set up enterprise, thinking they could just take the land and live happily ever after. But there's nature. And, you know, these animals and plants have just as much right to be here than humans. And that's the thinking that Aboriginal people have always lived by. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, that's my opinion is that... We've always lived with harm, in harmony with nature. We've never tried to um, defeat it because we know that we're going to end up at the losing end of, of nature because she can come back and hit hit us in a pretty bad way. That's why you need to look after her. And- yeah, 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 yeah. just going on from what you were saying before, um, you know, this is, you know, probably, you know, the first time Indigenous people from across Australia have come together, you know, in regards to the dingo. Um, we know nationwide the dingo as an animal, um, especially in Australia, is a, and dingo management is a very um, contentious issue. But, um, you know, this is about Indigenous people um, having a say about the dingo in regards to management. Um, 
you know, we want to hear the stories from um, traditional owners, um, you know, their concerns. Also, um, you know, what's happening on their country as well in, in terms of, you know, the work that they're doing in regards to monitoring the dingoes, potentially working with landholders as well. It's all about um, Indigenous people coming together and raising the issue of dingoes and more about us having a say about the management as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what outcome uh, do you expect uh, from uh, the forum? One of the things we're, we're looking at first and foremost is setting up a national um, lingo yeah, network yeah. And, and potentially a steering, maybe a steering committee as well. So I think that that's one of the, you know, first things that, that we're looking at and really, really forming with our traditional owners just so any issues and concerns that are raised, you know, it can go through that um, through that network and through that through that committee. And uh, are there any resources or website uh, where you can direct our listeners to get more information about uh, this forum and uh, the misconceptions about the dingo and the outcome expected from the forum? There is a page, a landing page on um, our website at Girigan Aboriginal Corporation, which is www.girigan.com um, there's some information there um, we will be li- live streaming but it will be to invitation mm. only but we will have someone edit that live stream and we will put it up at a later time um, for people that would like to go in and, and have a look at it and it will be put up on the landing page but um, yeah I think you know, just keep watching our social medias as well. Um, I think that's the best way to reach our people, you know, is through social media platforms. It's early days for First Nations people. This is the first gathering and this is the first time we've come together for the dingo. It's a conversation that has been brewing for quite some time because I think we felt like We've been left out of the, this this conversation for, for a very, very long time. And look, let's be honest, it has been a one-sided conversation, but unfortunately there's another stakeholder there. Um, there's over 240 different tribal groups on this landmass that we call Australia. I'm pretty sure, and I think our confidence will even be cemented even further at this forum, that, um, you know, these Aboriginal groups that are coming from South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Northern Territory, Western Australia, they're coming because they want to have a say. The response from First Nations peoples across Australia was massive, um, but people don't have the money, you know, they want to come, but that's where the live streaming will come in. So, you know, we've already got nearly 120 people confirmed but I can just imagine how many more are going to come in on the live stream when we send that invitation out tomorrow Um, because it's a conversation that a lot of First Nations people wanted to come and have, but unfortunately due to um, financial restraints weren't able to to come. These are the, the, the people that we keep with us and we follow up after this. So it's just early days. We'll see where this goes. Two of the things that Chris 
touched on one of the outcomes was setting up a national network. The second criteria is that we will be signing and releasing a national First Nations Dingo Declaration statement um, to government to advise, you know, what the significance of the dingo is, what the problem is, and what we as First Nations peoples want and how we want to be involved moving forward. Now, before I let you go, any closing thoughts or something we may have uh, missed that you'd like to bring to the attention of our listeners? One of the key things from this um, forum is to create a new way to educate people because when we've combined... So the idea is to combine Indigenous knowledge with Western science um, because great things can happen when those two things come together. What we want to do is just educate people, you know, out there that the terminology of wild dog, um, you know, the current science is proving now through the work of Dr. Kylie Cairns that they're actually dingoes and most of them are pure. One of the things that we will be pushing at this forum is to get rid of that word wild dog because they're not wild dogs, they're dingoes. And that was uh, Sonia Takao and Chris Morita talking about the inaugural First Nations Dingo Forum held last week in Keynes and over the weekend. Time for another break, but when we come back, we explore Indigenous cultural burning, fire techniques that have been passed down through the centuries to manage land, plants and animals. Stay tuned. NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook. Welcome back. You're listening to NITV Radio and I'm Bertrand Tungandame, your host today, coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation. Now, smoke sweeps through the treetops as our fire consumes the denser growth of the Australian winter bush. To the uninitiated, this fire might appear to be dangerous, but it is actually a controlled cultural fire preparing the vegetation ahead of a looming bushfire season. As Alan Lee explains, the burn is part of a project in northern New South Wales showing how to use fire techniques that have been passed down by First Nations people over generations to manage land, plants and animals. The Jagan Alliance Aboriginal Corporation has been teaching the residents of Billen Cliffs Village in northern New South Wales how to use fire techniques that have been passed down through the centuries to manage land, plants and animals. Cultural burning is a planned and deliberate fire set on landscapes that's executed within controlled lines and at lower temperatures, burning small patches of vegetation, allowing animals and birds to move away from the heat. Indigenous elders have used the technique to reduce fire hazards and facilitate growth of cultural pathways, significant species and native wildlife. Oliver Costello, the executive director at Jagan, says the technique generates far less heat than standard hazard reduction burning. You know, the land is teaching us um, that we are not paying attention. Um, you know, logging and clearing and fossil fuels and, and the destruction that we've done on the land and what we put up into the atmosphere, it's coming back on us. Um, and that's why it's so important that we get people back on the country and learning how we can heal the land, bring the fire back, bring the trees back, look after the waters and the river and, and, and get more functional, healthy systems because not only will they be better for us, cleaner water and air and safer places, They'll also be more resilient to, to changes in the climate, which we're going to have more. You know, we're seeing big changes. 
He says following the disastrous bushfires in the Northern Hemisphere summer across North America, Europe and China, the expectation is that Australia's summer will also bring with it increased risks of serious bushfires. so important that we, we learn from what's happening, you know, Europe, Canada. You know, it'll be us in the next few months we'll be, when the fire, you know, cycle shifts, you know, in these landscapes and we go from these cooler fires to hotter, you know, summertime, um, we'll, we'll start to see that hot fire too. Local resident Anastasia Guys reached out to Jagan to help to prepare the land around the village for future possible bushfires by eradicating weeds from the undergrowth. She says many people are no longer active on the land and they're not sure what to do or how to bring back biodiversity or protect themselves from fire. I think after the 2019-2020 bushfires, a whole lot of people right across Australia, including here where we are in northern New South Wales, became really conscious of the destructive force of -of out-of-control wildfire and they began to understand that some of the things that led to that besides, you know, climate change and landscape legacy and things were, you know, the way in which landscapes have been managed and are being managed and so one of the keys that was missing, I think, for a lot of people was cultural burning. Cultural fire was lost after colonisation in the 18th century, but it's been revived in recent years, especially following the 2019-20 to 20 Black Summer, as landowners became increasingly concerned about future-proofing their properties. Property owner Michael Smith, who lost close to 75% of his property in those bushfires, also called in Jagan for help ahead of the summer season. Yeah, it's, it's part of life, you know, it's part of Australian bush that burns, and you've got to be on top of it. We are, they have. Indigenous people actually burned for years, didn't they? And keep control of the fires and it stopped all the fires. But now, a lot of people say we've got a lot of landowners that don't want to burn anymore. And that's caused a lot of problems for them, you know, in these fire seasons. The Jagan Initiative also creates opportunities for local Aboriginal people to work on country by gaining practical skills while maintaining ancient methods of caring for the land. With a grant from the Australian Government's National Emergency Management Agency, Jagan is able to run 20 community bushfire recovery workshops across the seven local government areas in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. Anastasia Guys, speaking while taking part in the cultural burn, says she's really pleased at the way the project in Bill and Cliffs is working out. I feel really comfortable. I didn't expect to feel this comfortable, but I just I feel, I feel like it's really right. It's been done gently. There's a whole lot of crew on the ground and I feel absolutely comfortable with it. I'm Lee, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And uh, that's all uh, from uh, NITV radio this uh, Monday afternoon. NITV radio will be back on uh, Wednesday and Friday later this week. I'm Bertrand Tungandame, thanking you for staying with me this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.